0: Shalom. This is Mark Robinson, Executive Director of Jewish Awareness Ministries. Welcome to Jewish Awareness Podcast, a teaching ministry of Jewish Awareness Ministries. On Friday nights at our headquarters, we host a Bible study. Generally, we do verse-by-verse studies of different books of the Bible. These studies can be viewed live through the JAM Facebook livestream platform on Fridays. If you have questions or would like additional information, go to our website, jewishawareness.org. Email us at office at jewishawareness.org or call us at 919-275-4477. Enjoy the Bible study.
1: Something very odd has happened. I have two lessons in a row. So we are going to be able to continue right where we left off last week without too much recap. Last week we got up to verse 21 and decided to stop there in John chapter 10. I wasn't sure if we would continue with the same handouts from last week, which go through the end of John chapter 10. I'm not sure if that would suffice to fill our time slot that we have here. And also, I wanted to be able to maybe go a little bit further. But when you get into John chapter 11, guess what? It's like all one story that you cannot really break up. So we're going to see. I mean, I don't know when in the world that will be when I have another chance to teach Bible study. So we're going to see if we can get all the way through John 11. I don't know if we will or not. I'm not going to force it if it doesn't work out. But we we will attempt to. Okay. So John chapter 10. And if you want to open your Bibles there as well, if you have them with you, we're going to reference back to at least verse 21, which isn't printed out on your sheet there. But Jesus is still in Jerusalem, okay? This is the the context, John chapter 10. As we come up to John chapter 10, a couple of different things have led us up to this point. And so in John chapter 9, we saw Jesus heal a blind man. And dispute with the Pharisees about Moses. And now, between verse 21 and 22, it's about two months later from Jesus' conversation with the Pharisees about the Good Shepherd. And so this is, um, it was uh, just after the Feast of Tabernacles for the first half of John chapter 10. If you look down to verse number 21 okay, of John chapter 10, this is where we left off. Others said, these are not the words of him that hath a devil. Can a devil open the eyes of the blind? And that basically ends that conversation that Jesus was having with the Pharisees roughly the day after the Feast of Tabernacles, okay, the Feast of Sukkot. Um, and so we find in verse 22, And it was at Jerusalem the Feast of the Dedication, and it was winter. Yes. Sometimes it's snowed in Jerusalem because the elevation is high enough that it gets down to freezing at some points in the winter. Um, usually it's wet and cold, kind of like what you would picture. Actually, it's very accurate in some ways to say it's just like here. You know, it's it's more. It depends on where you go in Israel. Sometimes so, sometimes it's warmer and more humid. But as far as you know, what's it like in the winter in in, in Raleigh? well it usually doesn't snow but it can get pretty cold for like two days <laughs> you know. Um, so that's, that's similar to probably uh, what it's like um, in Jerusalem at that point in time. I know when we go we go in October usually, end of October, and when you go to Jerusalem especially at night in October I mean you gotta wear a sweatshirt and maybe a coat because it gets really cold after the sun goes down you're at a high elevation and if we were there probably like in January it would be pretty, pretty cold, and it snowed there before. It snowed, I think, this year. Um, so that's kind of what the winter would be like there. So it's very possible that at this point there's snow on the ground. If not, it's probably pretty brisk outside in Jerusalem in the winter. Okay. Yes. This feast of the dedication happened after the uh, last book of the Old Testament in that interim time. Of yes. Macedonia. No, that is That's not the first time we hear about it. correct. That that is not in the Old Testament. It happened in between Malachi and Matthew, that 400 silent years, okay? I think it was about 125 BC if I am remembering correctly. Uh, something like that. Uh, the temple had been defiled and then they celebrated with a feast every year That's because it had been Yes. Yes, on the 25th of Kislev, which is roughly December 25th. Yes, um, and so it's interesting because pretty much John chapter 7, John chapter 8, John chapter 9 all occur around the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles, Sukkot, which is in roughly September, okay, um, and then a John chapter um, 9 and 10 is like the day after that it's roughly like right after they're, they're really close together these events in progression one after the other it's like a continuous narrative but then when you get to verse 22 of John chapter 10 roughly two months have elapsed between verse 21 and 22 because now you're not at the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles anymore you are at the Feast of Dedication and we can pinpoint exactly what dates those are on the Hebrew calendar and so just to let you know that there's a division there and it says in verse 22 and it was at Jerusalem the feast of the dedication what is dedication in Hebrew well it's Hanukkah okay Hanukkah is dedication in Hebrew it's one and the same feast of dedication Hanukkah and it was winter and Jesus walked in the temple in Solomon's porch the feast of dedication is Hanukkah I'll elaborate on this a little bit Uh, Jesus may have been there to take part in the celebration Maybe we can ask him when we get to heaven if that's why he was there. Okay, And I, I, I asked um, the boss okay, his opinion on this passage. Can we say dogmatically that Jesus was there to celebrate Hanukkah? And he said, eh, we don't know. The scripture doesn't say. It's possible, maybe even probable, but we can't say dogmatically that that's why he was there. But the celebration for Hanukkah would certainly have been... I mean the epicenter of that would be at the temple in Jerusalem and that's where we find Jesus in verse 22. So I'd like to say that it's very possible, if not probable, that he was doing that there. Yes? Just another, um, kind
0: of off the um, question, Uh, Solomon's Porch, now this is a different temple, isn't it? This isn't Solomon's
1: temple anymore. Well it was rebuilt. Okay, it was it was rebuilt, um, you know, after the Babylonian captivity was over, and then Herod did his renovations there. Okay, but this is this is uh, the first century temple, Herod's temple. Um, there was still some remnants of things from Solomon's era, but that was, you know, very much, um, you know, destroyed and dismantled and and you know wrecked. They changed some things, they added some things. I mean, Solomon was very grandiose. Um, and interestingly enough, um, Herod's temple, uh, compared to Solomon's temple, was like, eh, you know, as far as we can tell from history. And yet the passages uh, that um, and I'm, I'm trying to think of the exact passage. there's a passage in the Old Testament where it says that this uh, temple that's being rebuilt, okay? Um, by those like you know Nehemiah and Zerubbabel you know and Ezra and that whole crowd um, that that temple is going to have greater glory than Solomon's temple and that's the temple that Jesus was dedicated in that he came in and overturned the tables that he taught from uh, daily when he was in Jerusalem and so um, that is what brings the the glory to that temple Um, but anyway, so it's, it's basically uh, the temple of uh, Ezra and Nehemiah era but uh, had some renovations from Herod uh, by this time. In Solomon's porch, Solomon's porch uh, boy I'm trying to think of, of what, speci- what area that specifically is. I'll have to get back to you on that. And I want you guys to remind me if you ask a question and I answer it with just like a answer, all of our viewers at home don't hear the question and it may be kind of s- odd for them to try and catch up to okay I know what his answer is but what was the question <laughs> and so I have to remember remind me to repeat what you say so that the people you know the viewers at home can out there in TV land can hear what we have to say does that answer your question sufficiently enough? No. I'd have to get back to you on that, <coughs> Solomon's Porch. Um, I think I know where it is, but I'm not sure as to the origin if it's Solomonic or Herodic. Okay. So basically. Like I said, there's roughly two months' time that passed between verse 21 and 22. John 7 and 8 are during the Feast of Sukkot, or Tabernacles. John 9 through 10, 21 seems to take place on or right around the day after Sukkot ended. And the Feast of Dedication is two months later. Okay, so kind of setting the stage here, he's in Jerusalem. Then in verse 24, came the Jews round about him and said unto him, how long dost thou make us to doubt? If thou be the Christ, tell us plainly. Now, something interestingly about this verse, and I have, I have some, um, some notes here below, and I'm trying to think if these notes um, say what I want to say. Um, when they say, if thou be the Christ, tell us plainly, they're not necessarily saying, if you're really the Messiah, tell us in a simple fashion, tell us plainly, tell us completely uh, in a simple way. They're more along the line saying, tell us plainly. You know what I'm saying? Because Jesus revealed himself to others throughout his ministry um, plainly. And here the emphasis is not necessarily on, you know, tell us plainly. Tell somebody plainly that you're the Messiah. They're saying, we want you to come to us on our terms and verify to us who you are because we are your authority. Because remember what is the theme of John as far as what is being focused on throughout all of these passages? Jesus' authority. And so when we see Jesus react certain ways to certain groups and certain crowds his authority is the issue and it will help us to understand why in what context he answers certain people. You see, there's nothing, and this is a quote from the Jewish Gospel of John. I, I, I think I uh, mentioned him in last week's lesson. Uh, this is an Israeli Jewish believer. Uh, Eli was Rokin Eisenberg. He says, you see, there was nothing unclear about Jesus' ministry and teachings as he traveled in Israelite Galilee and Samaria performing signs and making incredible claims. There was nothing unclear about it. However, he did not come through the officially approved channels. And therefore, the Udayoi, okay, which is like the uh, Jewish religious group, okay, uh, specifically those in Judah and, and Jerusalem, uh, they, if in effect, said to him, Do the right thing. Don't be a loner. Submit your candidacy for messiahship to us. Go through the right channels. We are your authority. We need you to submit to that authority and basically tell us plainly, reveal to us who you are saying to be. We are the way, we are the gate, we will decide what to do about it. Remember, just a couple of verses previous, although two months' time have elapsed, in the first half of John chapter 10, Jesus is constantly talking about, I am the door, I am the good shepherd, I am the true shepherd, the wicked shepherds care not for the sheep. He's not just saying, okay, uh, Pharisees and scribes and those in the Jerusalem light authority, I'm telling you a nice story about the evil shepherds, He's not just telling them a story about evil shepherds detached from the audience that he's talking to. He's pointing the finger at them. You evil shepherds, you care not for the sheep. The, true, the, 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 the sheep know the true shepherd's voice and they follow me. Speaking of, of, of Israel. We talked about that last week. Um, and so, uh, we will decide what to do about it, is what they're saying. As we have seen earlier, Jesus refused to submit to the authority of the okay, the Jewish religious crowd. That's the Greek word there when it says the Jews, the Jews, the Jews. He maintained their authority was inferior to that of his father. His father had already approved his mission to Israel, and therefore their approval was wholly unnecessary. The reason they did not believe his words was simply that his voice was foreign to them. He was not their shepherd, they belonged to another and as I watched that video today uh, uh, that Jews for Judaism uh, video it's 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 just so apparent um, especially in his explanation of Isaiah 53 which doesn't make any sense when they try to say that it's Israel it doesn't make any sense I mean yes other times in Isaiah I, Israel is referred to as the servant but when you get to Isaiah 53 you have to force it in a way that doesn't make sense in order to say that the suffering servant of Isaiah 53 is Israel. And he goes for, I don't know, it was like a 38 minute video that I watched in like 15 minutes, because I watched it like super speed. But, um, you know, when he got to the part talking about Isaiah 53, he said, okay, we're gonna look at Isaiah 53 in context. He never read one verse, not one single verse from Isaiah 53. All he did was beat around the bush, tell people's opinions, and use kind of circular reasoning, which is exactly what he was accusing the Christians of, when he didn't even read a single verse from Isaiah 53. <sighs> anyway, all right, so these people that Jesus is encountering here are much like that rabbi. Okay? They want him to go through their channels in their way and come to him on their terms. And he's saying, I don't need to even bother to give you the time of day. My father has sent me and later we'll see him say I am I and my father are one and boy that really that really upset them okay so in verse 25 Jesus answered to them okay here we see Jesus's answer I told you and you believe not okay so like it's interesting they're saying tell us tell tell us plainly reveal to us who you are if you're a candidate for Messiah let us know so that we can do this correctly and so Jesus says I told you and you believe not the works that I do in my Father's name they bear witness of me look back at verse number 21 of John chapter 10 remember how at the very end of their argument okay the Pharisees some of them were believing some of them weren't there was a division among uh, the Jews the UDI for saying these things and many of them said he hath a devil and is mad why hear ye him In verse 20 and then verse 21 Others said, these are not the words of him that hath a devil. Can a devil open the eyes of the blind? Another thing this rabbi said. He said, nowhere in scripture does it ever say that the Messiah is going to perform miracles. <sighs> okay, so like Isaiah 61, you know, where Jesus gets up in the synagogue and he reads and he says, these day, this day are these things fulfilled in your ears. Uh, the Lord hath uh, anointed me and, and, and sent me to open the eyes of the blind to proclaim liberty to the captives, and so on. Um, they're willingly ignorant of some of these things um, because they flat out say untruths regarding what the scripture says about the Messiah. Anyway, Jesus said, I told you, and you believe not the works that I do in my Father's name, such as the blind man in John chapter 9 that Jesus healed, that the guys in John chapter 10, verse 21 were arguing. Can a devil do these things? Can a man that has a devil open the eyes of the blind? Jesus says, the works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. Go talk to the guy that I just you know, healed a little while ago, a couple months ago, um, who was in Jerusalem, by the way. But ye believe not because ye are not of my sheep, as I said unto you. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father, which gave them me, is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my hand, out of my father's hand. Um, there are those in different circles that believe that either you can sin and, and, and lose your salvation, or you can't really do that, but you can choose to walk away and you can forfeit your salvation. Um, neither of those is true, obviously, but when we look at this passage here, Jesus says, my father, which gave them me, is greater than all. If we say that we can walk away from our salvation, if we say we can lose our salvation, if we can say that we're kept by our own power to continue in righteousness, such as the Seventh-day Adventist, um, then we're saying, my father is greater than all, except for fill in the blank. You're saying that you're greater than the father if you say that you can lose your salvation or you can walk away from it no man can pluck them out of my father's hand. That includes ourselves, that includes our own uh, you know, our own uh, actions, cannot cause us to be plucked out of the father's hand. We're secure because we're kept not by our own righteousness or our own willpower, we're kept by the power of God the Bible says unto the day of redemption. And so be encouraged with that. This is a passage that really enforces that um, beyond any argument. Um, and you know what's interesting all of John chapter 10 leading up to this and even this passage here talking about sheep Jesus says I am the door okay and um, just to kind of reiterate some things when he's talking about in John chapter 10 earlier about the sheep uh, he calleth his own sheep by name and and, and leadeth them out and they follow him they know his voice Uh, Jesus says in verse 7 I am the door of the sheep all that ever came before me are thieves and robbers he's talking about the people he's conversing with you're thieves and robbers um, and then he says but the sheep did not hear them i am the door if by any man enter in uh, he shall be saved and go in and out and find pasture the thief that cometh not but for to kill and destroy verse 11 i am the good shepherd the good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep now there's some and i mentioned this before but just to kind of repeat it there is an idea that the sheep here are the christians and Christians are referred to as sheep in some cases but here when we compare this with the book of Ezekiel specifically Ezekiel 34 and Ezekiel 37 we'll see that the sheep here are not in context Christians the church, the church is a mystery at this point the sheep that he's referring to is the nation of Israel and the, the, the Christians okay, quote unquote Jew and Gentile together in one body um, the church was never subject under the authority of these thieves and robbers okay, in the Jerusalemite religious authority and yet the nation of Israel was and here Jesus says not only that but to echo what it says in Ezekiel 37 about the two different uh, sticks one for Judah one for Israel he's gonna make them one uh, and, and all of the sheep they'll be one and they'll have one shepherd it says in Ezekiel number th- uh, chapter 37 uh, Jesus says uh, in verse 16, other sheep I have which are not of this fold, and them also must I bring, and they shall hear my voice, and there shall be one fold and one shepherd. Ezekiel 37, Judah and Israel becoming one nation again, and having one shepherd, and uh, and, and that speaking of Father, which gave them to me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my hand. It's not like the sheep are wandering in a pasture; it's Jesus is is, is holding the sheep. The Father is holding the sheep. Um, and so, if, if, if even just straying, you know, straying away, um, there's a, a hymn that says, Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. You know, we still have this flesh that's pulling on us, and Satan's trying to get his hook in. And yet, that is not going to pluck us ever, ever, ever out of the Father's hand. We may be chastised to go exal- along exactly with what Mark has been teaching in the book of Hebrews but we are not going to be plucked out of the Father's hand if we're a true believer. And then Jesus says in verse 30, I and my Father are one. He just finished saying, My Father which gave them me is greater than all, no man's able to pluck them out of my hand. We read in the book of Acts, later on when Paul is regiving his testimony to a bunch of Jewish people. Uh, actually, I think it's maybe when he's went before uh, Felix, or Festus, he's before one of those. Anyway, later in the book of Acts, Jesus says that when Paul came to him and said, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? Then he was speaking to him in Hebrew. Do I know if Jesus was speaking Hebrew here? Well, he was in Jerusalem talking to the Jerusalem religious leaders. He very well could have. But what he would have said, I and my father are one, ani Avi, my father, echad which echoes the Shema, does it not? That's what he would have been saying if he was speaking in Hebrew. Anyway, they took the message correctly and they got upset because they knew full well that Jesus was proclaiming that he was one with the God of Israel, that he was God himself. And we see that very directly in their response to him. Uh, When he says, I and my father are one, verse 30, then the Jews, the Udeoi, the Jewish religious crowd, took up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, Many good works have I showed you from my Father. For which of those works do you stone me? The Jews answered him, saying, For a good work we stone thee not, but for blasphemy, and because that thou, being a man, makest thyself God. They knew full well what Jesus was claiming. Jesus absolutely claimed to be God. And so when we look through the Scriptures, we'll see a bunch of different things just jump off the page when we look at it in context that Jesus was claiming to be the Messiah. He was claiming to be God. They got upset for not telling them plainly when he was absolutely telling them plainly. They just didn't like the answer. Bottom line. And so Jesus answered them in verse 34. We're going to park on this for a little bit. Look at at a a psalm that this is uh, quoted from in a little bit here. Jesus answered them. He said, Is it not written in your law, I said, ye are gods, If he called them gods, unto whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken, say ye of him whom the Father hath sanctified and sent into the world, thou blasphemest, because I said, I am the Son of God? If I do not the works of my Father, believe me not. But if I do, though you believe not me, believe the works, that ye may know and believe that the Father is in me, and I in him. So over and over and over in these verses uh, proceeding, starting in verse number, uh, let's see here, verse number 29 through verse number 38, he keeps referencing my father, my father, my father, my father. And then he says, I and my father are one. And then he says, the father is in me and I in him. The father hath sanctified me and sent me into the world. Do you say I'm blaspheming because I am saying that I am the son of God? He's telling them absolutely plainly black and white who he is, and they're upset. Now, turn in your Bibles to Psalm 82. Okay, You can keep your finger in John if you want. We have the verses printed out on the handouts there. But this is what Jesus is quoting from. Psalm 82. Now, before we get into the uh, passage here, some people... And this is from Spiros Zohadis. You guys ever hear of Spiros Zohadis? Okay, there's the Keyword Study Bible, Keyword uh, Hebrew-Greek Study Bible. And he is the one that uh, compiled or edited or created that commentary. And it's, for the most part, very good. Anyway, this is from him, from the Keyword Study Bible, a commentary on Psalm 82. Some people attempt to explain the phrase, Ye are gods, to mean that human beings can be gods As equal to God in his essence. Now let's let's stop there before we get into this commentary. Let's actually read Psalm 82. It's only eight verses. Now, before we get into it, I want you to know that this verse has uh, this passage has kind of bookends. Verse 1 and verse 8 are speaking of God, the God of Israel, the true judge. And all of these verses in between, 2 through 7, are speaking of men, specifically the children of Israel. Okay? verse 1 god standeth in the congregation of the mighty he judgeth among the gods now that's also the word elohim there and the segment of this uh, the, the the stress of this chapter of this psalm is judgment being a judge and doing judgment how long will you judge unjustly and accept the persons of the wicked Salah. defend the poor and the fatherless and do justice to the afflicted and needy judging right It's reprimanding the children of Israel. They know not, neither will they understand. They walk on in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are out of course. I have said, ye are gods, and all of you are children of the Most High. But ye shall die like men, and fall like one of the princes. Arise, O God, the God of Israel. Judge the earth, for thou shalt inherit all nations. This passage is a huge contrast between the God of Israel, the true and righteous judge, and the unrighteous judges that represent God to the nations through the nation of Israel. And so looking at this commentary here, let's read what it says and we'll kind of explain some things and then we'll, we'll uh, go into it a little bit deeper. Some people attempt to explain the phrase, ye are gods, to mean that human beings can be gods as equal to God in his essence. That was the lie from the Garden of Eden, Right? lie from Satan. The solution to this misinterpretation of these words is found in the proper interpretation of the word God in Hebrew. If we understand what this word is taken to mean in Hebrew, it'll help us get a better understanding along with the context of Psalm 82 to understand what's being said. It is the word Elohim which is used of God, referring to his office as judge and diviner of justice. Did you know that? I thought Elohim was just God, okay, or gods, because Elohim itself is plural. Sometimes we will see Elohim translated in the Old Testament as gods, referring to false gods, or or, or God, capital G-O-D, in reference to the true God. The very first verse, in the beginning, Elohim created the heavens and the earth. And that's the true God. And although the name is plural, He acts as one. And the verb created is masculine singular, even though Elohim is plural. Now elsewhere, when you'd find the word gods in the Bible, like for instance, against all the gods of Egypt, will I execute judgment, God says. That's also the word Elohim, meaning gods, plural, false gods. But what's interesting to me is that the word Elohim not only has to do with a deity, be it the true God Elohim, or false gods, like the gods of the Canaanites or the gods of Egypt, but it also has an implication for judgment. Okay, one that does judgment, one that brings judgment. In all of those scenarios, okay, in the ancient Near East, with you know Egypt and and, and, and Canaan, all of their gods, be it Baal or Anubis, or Ra or you know, fill in the blank, some other god, Dagon of the Philistines, all of those gods were not necessarily only looked at as deity, like we look at God today, you know, worship, but they also, every single one of them was looked at as a judge. There was always this sense of trembling, there was always this sense of fear before any god, whether it was a true god or a false god, because the people, they worshipped Dagon just like, you know, others would worship the true god. And they cowered before that god, even though it was just a statue with a fish head. They cowered before that thing. And um, why? Because they were afraid that that god was going to bring judgment. That god was going to judge whatever he wanted to judge and bring it upon them. So the word Elohim inherently not only carries with it the idea of deity, but it carries with it the idea of a judge. Okay. Yes. Yes. yes it's the same word okay and in Hebrew there's no capital letters to say okay this one's with a capital E this one's with a lowercase it's just all dependent upon context okay Uh, and so in the establishment of the office of judge in the Old Testament remember the time of the judges what were they supposed to do were they just a guy with a gavel in a courtroom no they were the representatives of Jehovah to the nation. okay? They were kind of like a priest. They were kind of like the one that represents God to the people and the people go to the judge and you know there's that kind of mediator position. And so uh, the establishment of the office of judge in the Old Testament men were given the responsibility of representing this office of God. okay? Uh, thus the usage of the term Elohim would not be confusing to the one who understands that the man merely represents Jehovah. So in this scenario, as well as in some other scenarios that we're going to look at in the Old Testament Scripture, this term is used not to speak of a God, as we would think of a God, okay, like somebody like the Mormon Church, believing that you can become a God, Um, but it is in respect to the idea of this person is a representative This person is a judge representing the true God. Thus the usage, okay, I read that statement. In this psalm, however, God is condemning those who had perverted justice and had abused their God-given privilege to hold the office of a judge. That's the context of the whole thing of Psalm 82, is those that have been given the uh, representative office of representing God to the nation as a judge. So here, yes, the term Elohim is talking about the one true God in verse 1 and verse 8, but also throughout this, uh, well, specifically in verse 7, or I'm sorry, verse 6, when the term is used uh, Elohim there, and also it's the same word that's used about uh, false gods in in, in verse 1, um, it, it has the idea Of um, in verse 7 of representing God to the nations being a representative for the one true God which is very interesting when you look at John chapter 10 and why in the world Jesus used that verse to describe his position to these people the Jerusalemite authorities because what is Jesus? He's the express image of his person if you've seen me you've seen the Father I and my Father are one the Father is in me and I in him and the Father hath passed on all judgment to the Son. I think that was John chapter 6. And so all of this correlates um, beautifully with what we're reading in John. Now, we're going to get to the, the crux of the matter of this verse here in a minute. Question? Um, the, uh, somewhere in the L, I yes. So the L there, okay, like, like Bethel, house of God, or Panael, the face of God. Um, El, like Daniel, is God is my judge, okay, or my judge is God. And so, yes. And sometimes, mm-hmm, exactly, whenever you see the L in a Hebrew name, it's referring to the God of Israel in that name. Now, um, like for instance, Emmanuel, Emmanuel, with us, God. There's a couple of times in the Hebrew Scripture, they're very few and far between, when the singular form of Elohim is used, and it's Eloah, is used a couple of times, referring to the God of Israel. Um, But most of the time Elohim is used. And it's kind of like um, in English, okay, we have the word God. And if we're just saying that word audibly, you can't see that it's spelled with an uppercase G or a lowercase G, you could be referring to false gods. You could be referring to the God of Islam. You could be referring to God, the one true God, the God of Israel. But it's all the same word that sounds exactly the same. It's just one's uppercase, one's a lowercase to make the difference between who we're referring to. And in Hebrew, the word Elohim can mean all of those things. just depends on context, what it's referring to. So, to, to, to get down to the nitty-gritty, okay? In the establishment of the office of judge, um, okay, I've read that part already, um, and so... This psalm, however, God is condemning those who had perverted justice and had abused their God-given privilege to hold the office of a judge. The warning given in verse 7 is that although they be gods, okay, and there the term Elohim is what's in the Hebrew, and yet it's referencing their office as judge, and that's clear from the context as well. Although they be gods, the warning in verse 7 is saying, uh, though they hold this honorable office among men to rule over them as God's representative, okay, uh, just as if God himself was passing judgment, and yet they're doing it unrighteously. Yet they are but men and will die like all other men. okay. And so there's a contrast. There's a contrast that although that they be as Elohim, okay, not in respect of deity, but in respect of their office as representing God as a judge, to the nation. And that's what this whole passage is all about. Um, The distinction of other names of God in Scripture can also help to understand this passage better. No other names of God, such as Jehovah, El Shaddai, uh, and Yah are ever used of human beings. Except for, and this isn't in the notes, in Jeremiah, I think it's chapter twenty three, it says that one of the names of the Messiah is Jehovah Tzadiknu the Lord our righteousness. That's a name of the Messiah and he has Jehovah in his own name. Anyway, these names speak of or represent God's essence, Okay, who God is and his attributes of which men shall never partake. Okay, What, what makes God God? This fact is seen in the conclusion of verse 6 where it stated that all of you are children of the Most High, which I believe is El Elyon. Uh, the meaning that uh, that though they should represent God, they are held accountable and are responsible to him for their actions. This psalm is a cry to God for retribution for the injustices that these wicked judges have carried out and mentions God's response as well to that cry for retribution upon these false uh, judges, the ones that have done wickedly and judged unjustly and so to kind of sum it up there's a contrast being made between israel's position and his mortality israel had been given a position and and, and we've said this before and there's those that would say that that's not in scripture but israel had been given a position to where they were uh, given the mandate of showing the one true god to all the nations that's evident in the book of psalms it's evident in this passage as well that they are a representative of the one true God. Um, Throughout the book of Isaiah when it refers to Israel my servant um, when it does refer to Israel it's referring to Israel in his position that God had given in a very special way to represent him and yet here in an even more uh, specific or special position beyond being an Israelite was being a judge in Israel to represent God to the people and these judges here in Psalm 82 uh, were wicked, they were unjust, they were not representing God correctly. And so in verse number uh, 7, specifically, there's a huge contrast. Although you be as God, you will die like men. You're wicked and you're, and you're unjust. And so um, and, and what's interesting here is when Jesus brings up this passage in John chapter 10, he follows a very traditional Jewish way of, of of making an argument, okay? If you look in in the in the Jewish writings and the rabbinical writings and the way that things are phrased, usually they will start with because A is so, because exhibit A is so, how much greater is exhibit B. That's how a lot of Jewish arguments and Jewish writings and con- conversations in rabbinical literature progress. And so Jesus is saying, if, 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 if he said, in Psalm 82, and the scripture cannot be broken, I said, ye are gods, but ye shall die like men. He says, how is it um, that thou say that I blaspheme uh, whom the Father hath sanctified and sent into the world, because I said I am the Son of God? Um, okay, I wanted to go back here and finish up these bullet points. Verse 1 and verse 8 are speaking of God, the true God, the God of Israel. Verses 2 through 7 are speaking of Israel themselves. And specifically the false judges, those that had done wickedly. The passage is a condemnation of Israel's unrighteousness. And yet it does say that because of their position, they are called gods. Now, check this out. Keep your finger there. Uh, Actually, we'll be done with Psalm 82. But go over to Exodus chapter 21. Exodus chapter 21. Oh, man. Okay, I'm trying to think of how we're going to do this time-wise. Exodus chapter 21. Is it warm in here for any of you? No? Okay. I'm looking around seeing people with winter coats on and sweaters, and I'm usually very cold. Okay, but I'm not right now. Exodus chapter 21. Uh, Let's look at verse 6, and I wanted to show this to you. So you'd see it with your own eyes, or else you might not believe me. Then his master shall bring him unto the Elohim. It's the word Elohim. But it is definitely, in context, not speaking of the God of Israel, Okay, but it's speaking of the judges. He shall also bring him to the door, or unto the doorpost, and his master shall bore his ear through with an awl, and he shall serve him forever. Go over to chapter 22 and verse 8. Exodus 22 8. If the thief be not found, then the master of the house shall be brought unto Elohim, the judges, to see whether he have put his hand to his neighbor's goods. And then go down to verse number 9. For all manner of trespass, whether it be for ox or ass or sheep, for raiment, or for any manner of lost thing which another challengeth to be his, the cause of both parties shall come before the judges, Elohim. And whom the judges, Elohim, shall condemn, he shall pay double unto his neighbor. This is obviously not speaking of the God of Israel. God is a spirit. No man hath seen God at any time. And so when we look at this here, it's speaking of men. It's speaking of sinful men who are mortal and yet they represent God to the nation and they are called Elohim. That makes it all the more clear when we look at Psalm 82, what is Psalm 82 all about? Judges. Judges, judges, judges. And so he says here, I have said, ye are gods. It's speaking of their position as representatives of Elohim to the people what is jesus he is the one true representative of the father okay the son who is in the bosom of the father he hath declared him unto unto you the bible says Um, that same passage where it says no man hath seen god at any time and so jesus is the express image of his person jesus is the one that he told philip if you've seen me you've seen the father and so going back to john chapter 10 in verse 34, let's read this again: the words of Jesus in his response. When they were getting ready to stone him, because thou being a man makest thyself God, Jesus answered them. Verse 34: Is it not written in your law? And I said, Ye are gods. If he called them gods unto whom the word of God came, you see, those in Psalm 82, they were judges. They had position. They had, uh, you know, the law. They had all that they needed. To judge righteously because they had God's authority and God's word. And he says, if he called them gods unto whom the word of God came, the ones that had the scriptures, and the scripture cannot be broken, say ye of him, and this is what I want to emphasize, whom the Father hath sanctified, whom the Father himself hath set apart and sent into the world. You say unto him, thou blasphemest, because I said I am the Son of God. And so he's using that Jewish argument uh, way of reasoning, way of thinking, that because A is true, how much more does B blow it out of the water? You know, and he's using Psalm eighty-two, verse number, uh, verse number six, as an example. Then he says, uh, "If I do not the works of my Father, believe me not. But if I do, though ye believe not me, believe the works, that ye may know and believe that the Father is in me." And I in him. Okay? So what he is not saying, what he is not saying is that Psalm 82 teaches that you can achieve Godhood. Okay, that's not that's not what it's saying. It's saying positionally, as representatives of God to the nation, as judges, specifically judges, that they were called or they were looked at as as God, okay, to the nation, to the people. He says, if that's so, those that would die like men, in verse number seven, it says, if that's so, how much more is the one whom the Father hath sanctified and sent into the world, the true representative, the true judge, the Son of God himself? And I and my Father are one, and my Father's in me, and I in him. So I hope that brings some clarity to that situation, scenario. Are we ready to move on? We have a couple of minutes. And I I do want to do this justice, so we'll see where we can get. Okay. Therefore they sought again to take him, but he escaped out of their hand and went away again beyond Jordan to the place where John at first baptized. And there he abode. And many resorted unto him and said, John did no miracle. Did John the Baptist do any miracles? He was a preacher of righteousness, but he didn't, you know, part the Jordan River or anything. Okay. Okay. John did no miracle, but all the things that John spake of this man were true, and many believed on him there. How many of you guys have been to Israel, to the Jordan River baptism site? Okay, a bunch of you. I know Bob was baptized in the Jordan River, right? Or he got some water from the Jordan River as well. Yeah, and so um, where John goes to, to, where John did his baptizing, is it up in the north in Galilee? No, okay, it's down in the south. And here it's beyond Jordan. So if you look, if you look um, in I- I at that Jordan River baptism site, and you're trying to get a real nice picture that doesn't have like a you know a shrine or some kind of you know Greek Orthodox, Russian Orthodox, or a Jordanian flag in the background, you got to get around this angle, and you can see all the, the you know the brush and all the foliage, and you see this like picturesque um, river. But that's not on our side. That's not on the Israeli side. It's on the other side okay and so when john was baptizing he was probably on the other side of the river (laughs) nowadays that wouldn't be considered israel Um, but that's what it means by beyond jordan but it was in that same location i believe where where we go to visit the jordan river nearest to jerusalem which is kind of near jericho um, there in the south of 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 israel and so when uh, jesus went there Many remembered what John had taught and believed on him there. Are we ready for chapter 11? Okay, let's, let's take the plunge. Now, a certain man was sick, named Lazarus of of the town of Mary and her sister Martha. By the way, it was, it was that Mary which anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Now, this is something that we're going to read about in John chapter 12. Okay, so, so John is doing kind of like some uh, literary foreshadowing, I guess. But this is also recorded for us, I think, in Matthew and Luke. I'm not sure if it's in Mark, just offhand. But this woman, um, Mary, she is not to be confused with Mary Magdalene. She is not to be confused with Mary, the wife of Cleopas. And obviously, not the Mary, the mother of Jesus. Mary in, Mary's in, the, in, 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 in Israel in Jesus' day, you know, they were Miriam, was the name. And it was just like, you know, yeah, it was like Bob today. Everybody's Bob. So you go to Israel, it's like, you know, this Mary, this Mary, this Mary, and this Mary. There's a bunch of them, but they're different people. Um, the Roman Catholic tradition makes Mary of Bethany this Mary and Mary Magdalene the same person, but that's obviously not true. Uh, There's no biblical evidence to support that. Okay, so this Mary is a different Mary Mary of Bethany, Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus. Now, what in the world does Lazarus mean? That doesn't sound very Jewish, does it? I found out, and I'm kind of excited about this. Lazarus is a familiar name in Hebrew, Eleazar. Okay, which means God is my helper or God is my help. How many of you guys have ever heard of Ebenezer? Okay, which means what? It means stone, stone of my help. Okay, there's uh, Eben back there. Sometimes the B's and the V's in Hebrew they kind of change depending on what's being said. Okay, so Eben is the Hebrew word for stone. Ezer, or Azer, is help. So Eli by God, Azer is my help. God is my help. That's what Lazarus means. <coughs> Lazarus is kind of like a Greekified version of Eli Ezer. Therefore, his sisters sent unto him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom thou lovest is sick. When Jesus heard that, he said, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God might be, reveal, might be glorified thereby. Many times in life we face difficulties that we have no answer for, whether it's somebody with cancer, whether it's a young person that has some kind of tragedy in life, whether it's financial hardship, whether it's, you know, fill in the blank, um, national uh, travesty and, 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 and junk going on as far as uh, wickedness in this world. Many times we face difficulty we have no answer for. We experience situations that we don't know even how we should pray. What do I do, Lord? What do I, what do I pray in this situation? Well, there's two things that are always safe to pray for in every situation. And I would call them the two G's, okay? God's glory, in God's grace. I think I mentioned before, and I don't know, I must have been traumatized because Lois says I I refer to my gallbladder being taken out like all the time. She's like, did you know that that was like four years ago? Well, yeah. Um, But anyway, I was sick like every two weeks for six months straight. And I didn't know why. The doctors had no idea. I had gone to the emergency room like two or three times, and they said, oh, you got a virus. Oh, you got pancreatitis, but we don't know what's causing it. And your gallbladder's fine. And, you know, eventually I found out that it was my gallbladder and got taken out. But for those six months, I got pretty used to being sick. And there's times, oftentimes we'd say, Lord, help me. Lord, help me. Take this away. Just, just heal me. You know, get, 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 get rid of this thing. You know, I don't want to deal with this anymore. Help me to feel better. Take it away. And you know what? When I pray those prayers, I'm just as miserable as I ever was. And uh, one day, and I'm not sure where I heard this or what preacher said something, or maybe it was something I read in scripture. And I just, I decided to change my tune. And I said, God, please give me the grace to get through this. And it was like, it's like the easiest time I had ever dealt with that sickness. When I just simply said, Lord, make your grace uh, strong in my weakness. Give, Give me sufficient grace to get through this. And you know what? He did. And so we can always pray for, no matter what we find ourselves in, we can pray for God to be glorified. No matter what it is, pray for God to be glorified. And you can always, always come boldly to the throne of grace to find grace to help in time of need. Um, So, and I love this verse, verse number five. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Jesus loved them. Does Jesus love you? How do we know that? Well, the Bible tells us so, doesn't it? (laughs) Kind of set myself up for that one. Um, Not only do we have verses like John 3.16, for God so loved the world, okay, and you can put your name there, but uh, John 15.13, greater love, greater love, hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. Who was Jesus laying down his life for? Just the 12? Everybody. Okay. Um, Jesus loves you. He loved Lazarus. He loved Martha. He loved Mary. He loves you. Now I think the reason this is specifically brought out in verse 5. Is to let us know that Jesus really compared to other people that he encountered in his earthly ministry. He really had a special close relationship with this family with Mary and Martha and their brother Lazarus. He loved this family. When he heard, therefore, that he was sick, he abode two days still in the same place where he was. He stayed there. Jesus, he whom thou lovest is sick. And then he waits for two days in the same place. The question we often ask sometimes is, Why are you making me wait, Lord? Why haven't you answered my prayer yet? Why does Jesus tarry? Because that's exactly what he did here. He purposefully waited. Why did he do that? Why does he do that in our lives? Well, look back at verse number four. For the glory of God, that the Son of God might be glorified thereby. Why does God wait to answer our prayer when we're in a tight spot, no matter what it might be? you know health wise financially wise relationship wise why does God seem to just hold out and to wait it's for his glory and it's for us to experience his grace in the meantime and if we're not if we're not experiencing his grace in those times of waiting then we're really wasting the time that God had put there for us to grow And we're not taking advantage of uh, something that um, we should be using to get closer to the Lord. After this, he saith to his disciples, let us go into Judea again. Okay, to Judah. Because where were they? Well, he previously was where John was baptizing, right? Okay, turn your page over or to the next page. I have a little map there at the bottom that we're going to reference a couple of times here. That little tiny square, if you've got reading glasses, you can put them on. And, you know, wince as you kind of try and figure out what these words are. I don't know how small it would be when it was printed out. But we have Jerusalem right there. And we have Bethany where that little marker is. Okay, this town that Jesus is going to go to to visit Lazarus and Martha and Mary. But look over where it says Jericho with kind of New Testament. Okay, there's Qumran, if you remember that. Where the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered. And there's like the corner of the Dead Sea at the very bottom. And so the River Jordan is kind of like off in the margin of this page. Okay? That's where they were. And so they had to go over to Bethany after waiting for two days. Um, okay. Do, 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 do. Um, okay, there we go. His disciples say to him, Master, the Jews of late sought to stone thee. When did that happen? Well, the previous chapter, they were going to try and stone him because they were saying that thou be a, being a man makest thyself God. Uh, and and this, is this is this the Jewish nation? Is this all the people of of of, of the Jews? No, it's specifically uh, the Jewish religious crowd, those in Judah and Jerusalem. Now, if you look at that little page there, that little map on the bottom, how far is Bethany from Jerusalem? It's pretty close. So these disciples they start biting their nails, thinking. Do you really want to go back there? I mean, they, they said they were going to kill you. They tried to take up stones to kill you. Goest thou thither again? In verse 9, Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in a day? If any man walk in the day, he stumbleth not, because he seeth the light of this world. But if a man walk in the night, he stumbleth, because there is no light in him. Now, Jesus in the book of John has two other statements that very well parallel this statement that he makes to them. Uh, to respond to them saying, we shouldn't go. He's talking about the light of the world. If any man walk in the day, he stumbleth not. If any man walk in the night, he stumbleth, because there's no light in him. Look Look at these passages I have. John 9, 4 through 5. I must work the works of him that sent me, Jesus says, while it is day. The night cometh when no man can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. That passage right there pretty much directly interprets verse number 9 and 10 of John chapter 11. Jesus is saying, I'm here. This is my time. As long as I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. The night is coming when no man can work. John 12, verses 35 and 36. Then Jesus said unto them, Yet a little while is the light with you. While ye have the light, uh, walk while ye have the light, lest darkness come upon you. For he that walketh in darkness knoweth not whither he goeth. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may be the children of the light. And so Jesus is saying, it's my time. We need to go. I must work the works of him that sent me while it is day. I am the light of the world. You have me with you. And you can see, uh, while you have the light of the world, the night cometh when no man can work. In, I believe, reference to the end of his earthly ministry. Um... You know, when when he's not going to be there physically to do such things. And so he said, let's go. Now, these things said he, and after that he saith unto them, verse 11, Our friend Lazarus sleepeth, but I go that I may awake him out of sleep. Is Lazarus really sleeping? Is he just catching some Z's in a tomb? No, no, he's not. The reason Jesus uses this terminology is to show how simple it is for him to raise the dead. How, how hard is it? I, okay, I'm, I'm thinking of a roommate that I had in college, uh, one of my best friends. He was like the hardest person in the world to wake up. But normally, how easy is it to wake somebody up from sleep? Get up, you know, unless it's a, you know, a child on a school morning. Uh, that may be a little bit different. But he's speaking to them of the ease of what he's about to do, not the fact that Lazarus really isn't dead. He's, of course, definitely dead. Then his disciples said, "Lord, if he sleep, he's, yeah, pfft, we don't need to go. If he's asleep, if he'll be fine, he'll do well." Howbeit, Jesus spake of his death. But they that thought he had spoken of taking, they thought that he had spoken of taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus said to them plainly, "Lazarus is dead." Just to kind of get rid of the false idea that they had in their mind that, oh, well, if he's sleeping, it's okay, guys. He's dead. Okay. And I am glad for your sakes that I was not there to the intent you may believe. Nevertheless, let us go unto him. Now, there's a jewel in this verse that we miss if we just read over it. Verse 15. What makes Jesus glad? Do you know that there's something that makes Jesus happy? It says here, and this is something, that's true, but this is something else. He says, I'm glad. Why? To the intent that what? You might believe. I'm glad that I wasn't there for your sakes, to the intent that ye might believe. Jesus is happy. He's glad when we show forth our faith, when we trust him, when we believe what he said to be true. That makes Jesus glad. And so we should be encouraged to trust him, uh, whatever might come our way. Then saith Thomas, which is called Didymus, which by the way, Didymus is like the word for twin. It's a Greek word for twin. Uh, So I guess Thomas had a twin brother. He says unto his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Now, um, Thomas is probably here not speaking to Lazarus' death because Lazarus is already dead. He's not saying let us go that so we can you know, go in the tomb with Lazarus. He's probably referring to Jesus because pff, the world's going to end. There goes the neighborhood, Jesus is going to get stoned by these angry Jewish people and we're going to be in the crowd with them, and we're all going to die. So let's just do it, let's go that we can die with him. I think that's kind of the sense of what he's saying. Um, He's likely referring back to verse 8. You don't really want to go to uh, Judah, do you? And then when Jesus came, he found that he had lain in the grave already four days. This has the idea that when Jesus arrived, he was informed that Lazarus had been buried for four days. This passage is uh, not teaching that Jesus didn't know that already, but rather that upon his arrival, this was the scenario that he came upon, that Lazarus had been dead and buried for four days already. Now, Bethany was nigh unto Jerusalem about 15 furlongs off. And you see on your map there, it's two miles roughly, 15 furlongs, two miles. Okay. And many of the Jews came to Martha and Mary to comfort them. Concerning their brother. Now, this is interesting because the word Jews here is also the word Juddei, okay? The Jewish religious crowd, the Jerusalemite leadership, the religious Jewish people, not necessarily the Pharisees, not necessarily the scribes, not necessarily the Sadducees, but the Jewish people in Jerusalem that follow Judaism that are observant, that are strict, that are Orthodox, so to speak, okay? They're not just the everyday, uh, Jewish-Israeli person of the land, they are uh, practicing Judean Jews. And they come uh, uh, to, to Martha and Mary to comfort them concerning their brother, which is a normal thing regarding Jewish funerals. It's called sitting shiva. You guys ever hear that? Okay. Um, for days after their loved one has died, uh, you would go and visit that person and kind of not let them be alone. Uh, for I think it's seven days and so uh, but then Martha as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming he wasn't even there yet by the way he's on his way he's not even in Bethany he's not even in the village he's on the outskirts of the town coming from uh, you know uh, the Jordan River and uh, she heard that he was coming and she went to meet him but Mary sat still in the house then Martha said unto Jesus, Lord, if thou hadst been here, my brother had not died. Now, this is interesting. What do we know about Martha? We're going to maybe hear some passages, okay, again, a couple of chapters later about Mary and Martha, and there's other accounts in the Gospels. Mary, Mary, thou art, what, careful and troubled about many things, okay? You're cumbered about with much serving, okay? Martha was the just, you know... She had the go attitude. She's doing all this stuff, and she's just full of energy and vigor to, to, to get stuff done. Not necessarily um, having quiet and calm and humble obedience. Um, now, I'm not you know, ripping Martha about this, but it's interesting. You see her character come out as well in the way that she runs out of town to meet Jesus before he even gets there. And she says, Lord, if thou hadst been here, my brother had not died. By the way, we'll see in a couple verses, Mary say the same thing. And so this is not something that's just Martha. Oh, she's just saying, you know, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother had not died. That's not really the the sense of what she's saying. She's honest. She's sincere. Lord, my brother, it's an, an expression of faith. If you were here, we know my brother wouldn't be dead. And Mary says the same thing later. And then it says, but I know that even now whatsoever thou wilt ask of God, God will give it thee. Okay, Martha is exercising her faith there. And Jesus saith unto her, thy brother shall rise again. Now this is not just some kind of thing where, you know, she comes to Jesus oh, Jesus, if you'd been here, my brother had not died. And and I know that if you ask God anything, he will give. Martha is just torn. She's grieving. She's probably, you know, her voice is probably cracking talking to Jesus. She's probably got tears running down her face. She's dealing with the loss of, of, of an immediate family member that she loved. And she's coming to Jesus and, and, and all of this is going on. And by the way, within Judaism, and I don't think there's scriptural ground for this, but either way, in Judaism, there is a belief, and I'm not validating this or saying this is true, but there is a belief that once somebody dies, their spirit hovers over the body for three days and that's the time that they could possibly be brought back to life. But when, four, when the fourth day comes, forget it. It's over. I don't know where they get that idea from, but nevertheless, it's a teaching in Judaism. And so <laughs> Jesus waited until what day? The fourth day. You can imagine, you know, they probably didn't have, You know, maybe they had like a sundial watch I've seen sometimes in <laughs> cartoons. No, probably not. Um, but anyway, you know, <laughs> One day passes, two days pass, the third day's there, and you can almost imagine if you'd been here, you know. and, and, and then comes to the fourth day, and it's utter hopelessness. It's all, it, it, it's all over, it's done. And so um, Martha says unto him, verse 24, I know that he shall rise again in the resurrection at the last day. And Jesus saith unto her, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Believest thou this? Now I brought this up, and I think, I think Mark has talked about this as well. In fact, I know he has. What is death biblically? Separation. Whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never what? Exactly. Never, 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 never. So this is something we're looking at about Lazarus. Uh, in this passage, in, in in John chapter eleven, but this directly has bearing on you and me. We shall never, never, never see biblical death. We'll see physical death, okay? If the Lord doesn't tarry, um, but we will never see that separation. Whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Believest thou this? Okay. Let's see. Let's 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 go for it. Okay. She saith unto him, Yea, Lord, I believe that thou art the Christ, the Son of God, which should come into the world. Okay? So we can give kudos. I think that's the first time I've ever used that word my entire life. We give kudos to Martha, okay, for her faith. uh, Because she's saying, Yes, Lord, I believe that thou art the Messiah, the Son of God. And when she had so said, she went her way and called Mary, her sister, secretly, saying, The Master is come and calleth for thee. Now this is kind of funny. You ever see kids like... I don't know. And I don't know if this is true or not. I'm maybe reading into it, but you ever have, you know, kids where I don't know, I'll tell, I'll, I'll, tell my bro, I'll tell my I'll tell my son Seth, my oldest son. I'll tell him to go do something, you know. And the next thing I hear, he goes into, you know, their bedroom and he says, "Evan, Daddy wants you." <laughs> you know, and like it's not true. Uh, I'm not saying she did that here. I just find it interesting cuz we know Martha in the way that she is. Anyway, um, he may w- very well have said Go get your sister. But she goes secretly and and, and, and finds Mary and says, the master has come and he's calling for you. And as soon as she heard that, what did Mary do? She arose quickly and came unto him. She was in the house. She was weeping. She was in utter despair. And we know that for certain by reading the rest of this passage. But as soon as Martha says, Jesus is here, what does Mary do? She gets up quickly and she runs out to meet him. And Jesus was not yet come into the town, okay, but was in that place where Martha met him. Can you kind of get a sense of this whole situation and how it's transpiring? It's just, oh, their hearts have to be going like crazy. They have to be feeling maybe sick to their stomach because of the grief and all of the just incredible things that are going on. Then the Jews, which were with her in the house, with who? With Mary, right? The Jews that were with her in the house and comforted her when they saw Mary, that she arose hastily and went out. She, 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 she gets up and goes. Now, when, when, when Martha came to Mary and said, The Master calls for you, how did she do that? Did she say, Mary, the Master's here? Did she say it like that? No, it, the Bible says secretly. probably said, You know, Mary, Jesus is here and He's calling for you. So she gets up quickly and she basically runs out of the house. And all these people, we don't know how many, may pretend you guys are all the mourners that are there with her, you know, y'all get up and like, if I got up and just ran, just bolted out that door, some of you, probably Bob, would like, you know, come out and, you know, is Dan all right? You know, and we'd look out there, <laughs> no, he wouldn't care. I'd be fine. Um, but all of these people that are sitting with her, they think something's wrong. They think, oh, she's, she's, she's on the brink of, you know, just falling apart emotionally. So they follow her, saying, She goeth to the grave to weep there. It's already been four days, but they say, Okay, she's going to go to the grave, she's going she's to weep there. She's something is just overcome with grief and sorrow. So they follow her. And then Mary was come where Jesus was, and saw him, what did she do? She falls down at his feet and says unto him, Lord, if thou hast been here, my brother had not died. Now how is Mary when we see her elsewhere in scripture? What is she pretty much always, always, always doing? She's sitting at Jesus' feet. Okay. Um, it just is a testament to, to, to her faith in him. But she comes to him um, perhaps with the same uh, sincerity and, and, and humility as Martha, perhaps even more so. But she falls at his feet. Lord, if you'd been here, my brother had not died. When, the, when Jesus therefore saw her weeping, and the Jews also weeping which came with her, this is not just some kind of everyday scenario where they're coming and they're speaking normally. She runs out to meet him, and she's weeping. She falls in the ground, she's weeping. Everybody else around is weeping. And it says, when Jesus saw that, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled, and said, where have you laid him? And they said unto him, "Lord, come and see." What makes Jesus glad? Well, belief and trust in him. What makes Jesus troubled? When they don't believe, but also, also, and this is interesting, we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, right? He understands. He understands. Um, and so when he sees all of this, he's troubled. And he says, "Where where have you laid him?" And I said unto him, "Lord, come and see." And then the famous passage: Jesus wept. Can you just picture that for a second? It's probably not like you know one of those um, high society celebrity commercials where somebody just has like you know the Hollywood tear coming down their face. This is weeping. Uh, the The word weeping there uh, it, it comes from the Greek word for tear. So it's not just that he's getting misty, that he's, you know, just holding back, just, you know, no, he is is weeping. This is the God of Israel in human flesh, and he is weeping for somebody that he knew. He knew he would raise him from the dead in like five seconds, and yet what is he doing? He's weeping. And we should be moved by that. Jesus' love for his people. Uh, Jesus' sympathy uh, for those that are troubled and full of sorrow and experiencing pain, Jesus feels that. When you feel pain, when you're going through trouble and sorrow and grief and agony, Jesus feels that. He knows what it feels like. After all, he's called the man of sorrows, is he not? And acquainted with grief, right? He knows what it's like. And so when you're going through some kind of horrible situation that has nothing to do even with physical pain, but is just emotionally gut-wrenching, you can come to Jesus and he understands. He absolutely does. And so, we'll uh, finish on hastily here. Then said the Jews, behold how he loved him. They know it. They noticed. They saw Jesus' reaction. You ever been at a funeral or at a viewing and there's just like somebody there that's losing it, you know? Okay? Not just hy- hysterically, but just, you know, somebody that you can just tell is sincerely touched and full of grief for the loss that they've experienced. Here in this scenario, guess who it is that's that person? It's Jesus. Because of the reaction of the people that normally are against Jesus, normally don't want to have anything to do with him. They said, Behold how much he loved him. How, How did they know that he loved him? Well, because he's weeping. He's weeping over the loss of his friend, even though he knew that he would raise him from the dead. And some of them said, Could not this man which opened the eyes of the blind have caused that this man even should not have died? Jesus therefore again, groaning in himself, cometh to the grave. This was a heavy scene. It was a cave and a stone lay upon it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of him that was dead, saith unto him, Lord, by this time he stinketh, for he had now been dead for four days. This is an emotionally gut-wrenching scene and they don't want to add to it by smelling their dead brother. You know what I'm saying? It would just be so horrible to experience that. Martha's not saying this to um, you know, um, you know, rebuke Jesus or to, or to have any kind of a judgment on what he is saying or reproach. She's saying it simply because I believe they don't want to experience even more emotional agony and pain uh, than they already have. And so, um, you know what? Do, do we ever act like Martha in this situation? What's he about to do? The greatest thing they've ever seen in their entire life. And we have the audacity to be like, Lord, y- y- don't do that. You don't know what you're doing. <laughs> that's what Martha says here. And so the next time you're going through something that's difficult or hard to bear, and you think you're, 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 you're on the brink of asking the Lord, why are you doing this? You don't, you don't know what the right way is to take care of my problem, Lord. <laughs> that's what Martha's saying. And, uh, and Jesus saith unto her, Said I not unto thee that if thou wouldest believe, thou shouldest see the glory of God? Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead was laid. And Jesus lift up his eyes and said, Boy, I'm going a little bit, well, not, 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 not too far over. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank thee that thou hast heard me. And I knew that thou hearest me always. But because of the people which stand by, I said it, that they might believe that thou hast sent me. When he had thus spoken, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. Now, there's a couple different reasons for him crying with a loud voice. Some people say it was just for the theatrical nature of the whole scene. Lazarus, come forth. But there's a very practical reason for this. Um, What happened to a Jewish person if they touched a dead body? Unclean. Now... The way that Jewish burials were, uh, would occur, especially ones that were like in a cave like this, okay, there was usually two burials. You'd get buried twice, <laughs> believe it or not. Okay, the first one would be they would put you in a cave like this. At right after your death, they would put you in a cave, wrap you up in you know, whatever, and let that decay. Okay, let all the flesh and everything just go away. And then after some time, I'm not sure how long the length of time is, maybe a couple of years, a year or two, a couple of months, I don't know. But they would go and they would gather those bones, and they would put them in an ossuary, put them in a you know a, a box, and then they would take them to a different tomb, where they would have you know families before um, that had died for this permanent storage of of those bones. And so it's very very likely. In fact, you know what Bethany was—the town of Bethany. It's the, what put it on the map, was that it was a place caring for sick and dying people. So this grave that Lazarus was in was probably full of other bodies that were dead and decaying. And so why does Jesus not go into the cave and, you know, make a nice gesture and bring Lazarus out by hand? Well, because it's dark, you know, in a cave. And even though he's the son of God, for testimony's sake, he doesn't want people to look at him as though he was unclean. And so he calls out, Lazarus, come out of there. <laughs> and Lazarus comes out, okay? In um, lots of these caves, they had a hole that went down in underground as well. So they may have been waiting a while before Lazarus comes hopping out of there. Um, but anyway, Lazarus come forth and he that was dead came forth bound hand and foot with grave clothes and his face was bound about with a napkin. And Jesus saith unto them, loose him and let him go. Then many of the Jews which came to Mary had seen the things which Jesus did and believed on him. This is the Jewish religious crowd. This is the Jerusalemite authorities. Those that, um, you know, are are the stricter set of religious Jews. They saw what happened and they believed on him. But some of them went their ways to the Pharisees and told them what things Jesus had done. Then gathered the chief priests and Pharisees a council and said, What what do we? For this man doeth many miracles. What are we going to do? They're wringing their hands. If we let him uh, thus alone, all men will believe on him. And the Romans shall come and take away both our place and our nation. Now that's an important point. Okay, The Pharisees saying that if everybody believes on this guy we're going to be in big trouble and our nation's going to be in big trouble because not only are people going to be believing in the Jewish Messiah, but they're not going to be believing in the gods of Rome and Roman authority and all this other stuff. And so, uh, as we continue here, one of them named Caiaphas, who was the high priest, being the high priest that same year, said unto them, Ye know nothing at all, nor consider that it is expedient for us, meaning it's beneficial for us, that one man should die for the people and that the whole nation perish not. And this spake he not of himself, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus should die for that nation. And not for that nation only, but that he also should gather together in one the children of God that were scattered abroad. Now, is Caiaphas doing something that's like, Jesus is going to die for our sins, and he'll be the Messiah, he'll be the Savior? That's not what he's saying. It was true that he prophesied that Jesus was going to die, but... Jesus to, to Caiaphas is a scapegoat. Okay? It's better that the one that's causing all the trouble die than our whole nation perish because the Romans are going to not only take away our position and our power, but they're likely going to you know, squash this revolt and kill us all. It's better that Jesus die instead as a scapegoat. He is not speaking of his messiahship. Interestingly, what Caiaphas says in this verse echoes Jesus' teaching as well as that of Ezekiel from the previous chapter that I have other sheep that are not of this fold and there's going to be altogether one shepherd in one fold and you know it's speaking of Israel and Judah reuniting and so it's interesting that Caiaphas this is not the only time that he appears he appears at Jesus' trial and Jesus' judgment and Caiaphas was he friendly to Jesus? is he a nice guy? no okay So then, from that day forth, they took counsel together to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, walked no more openly among the Jews, the Udeoi. He was still, of course, surrounded by Jewish people all the time, just not the Jewish religious crowd uh, of the Jerusalemite group. But went thus into a country near into the wilderness, into a city called Ephraim, and there continued with his disciples. Flip it over back to the other side. See that little map there? You see Ephraim? near the north of the map. Okay, that's where Jesus went. And interestingly, Ephraim, in now what is called the West Bank, was the border of Judah and Samaria. It was right in between those two kingdoms that he would reunite uh, as Messiah. Okay, um, so he goes to Ephraim, there continue with his disciples, and the Jews' Passover was nigh at hand, and many went out of the country up to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. Then sought they for Jesus and spake among themselves as they stood in the temple, What think ye uh, that he will not come up to the feast? They're talking about Jesus. Where is he? Is he coming? I don't know. Is he going to come for the feast? I don't know. Do you think he's going to come? And then now both the chief priests and the Pharisees had given a commandment that if any man knew where he were, he should show it that they might take him. Who are the chief priests? Are they Pharisees? No, they're the Sadducees. Okay? The priests and the temple authority and the high priest, the chief priest, all of those priests were of the sect of the Sadducees, the Zadok scene. They're from Zadok. And they got along with the Pharisees in this instance with the sole focus of let's get rid of Jesus. Okay. We did it. All right. Thank you for being attentive. I know I went a little bit over, but I guess that's par for the course once in a while. (laughs) So, um, is there any questions or comments before we dig into the goodies? Okay. All right, well, let's go ahead and pray. Thank you, Lord, for this night. Thank you for helping us cover so much ground uh, with this uh, passage. And we just pray that you would help us to uh, hide the things that we've learned tonight in our heart. Help us to grow closer to you and to be able to apply Uh, what we've seen in your word tonight. We pray that you would bless the refreshments as well and our, our fellowship
0: tonight. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Shalom. This is Mark Robinson, Executive Director of Jewish Awareness Ministries, thanking you for listening to our Bible study. These Jewish Awareness podcasts are a teaching ministry of Jewish Awareness Ministries. If you have questions about the study that you just listened to or would like additional information, go to our website, jewishawareness.org, email us at office@JewishAwareness.org, or call us at 919-275-4477. Shalom.